0: Hello and welcome to the Steepoo's Benson podcast. It's good to come to you here on another beautiful summer day. Uh, as usual, I'm coming to you from my downstairs low tech studio in my office. And let me tell you, I tell you this every week it is low tech. I have my laptop, my White snowball microphone that's plugged into my computer, my GarageBand platform. There is nothing fancy about this, but I have my notes spread out before me on my iPad. And I'm here because I want to share with you some insights and ideas for my own life. Now, I'm doing this for a a specific reason. I always want to motivate and inspire other people. I want to share my life hoping hoping that it will inspire you in your life. I want to tap into your ambition. I want to tap into your purpose. I want to tap into your vision for life. You know, I always don't want you to agree with me. I want to uh, spark your imagination. Like last week when I talked about racism and um, and school shootings, it really sparked a lot of uh, a lot of interest. There's a lot of people who really disagreed with me. And I love that. The whole purpose of this is to get you thinking for yourself. And if you If this motivates you to disagree, then I love it. Just think for yourself about why you disagree, and let's engage a dialogue together. In fact, don't hesitate to share with me your insights, because oftentimes I don't know what you're thinking about, what it is I'm talking about. But anyways, my purpose is to engage your ambition, purpose, and vision for your life and motivate your faith. All right, so put in your earbuds, let's go for a walk, go for a run, do the dishes, clean the house Sit in the backyard, but let's enjoy a few minutes together. Okay, today, I want to pick up where I left off two weeks ago. Uh, Two weeks ago, I began sharing the story of when my identity was stolen. It was interesting, even though this whole thing happened over 10 years ago, it might even be 15 years ago, it was one of these seminal experiences in my life. You know, when you you find people kind of tell the same story over and over when you meet them, because these are the main marker stories that develop their personality. This this event that happened in my life shaped my whole way of thinking and being. It taught me some of the most profound lessons of life that I, when I started putting together my ideas for the podcast, I knew that I wanted to share this story with you because it uh, really shaped me. And so today I'm going to pick up where I left off. And uh, while well, last time I talked about it, this two weeks ago, I talked about how it taught me about forgiveness and what does it mean to forgive someone who's stolen your identity. But today I want to pick up on that and I want to talk about how God works in strange and mysterious ways. And because uh, that's my lesson about what happened to me next, is how God works in very strange and mysterious ways. So let's dive in um so I was but it goes that okay that I I had my identity stolen I had to learn about forgiveness um it took me a long time I worked through the forgiveness I'd come to a place of equ- equilibrium and I was feeling at peace I was feeling at peace with the whole thing uh the, all the financial mess was beginning to quiet down in fact if you need to re-listen to that podcast from two weeks ago do so so it kind of sets the uh, setting for this one. So, but I'd come to a place in peace, place of equilibrium. I was feeling pretty chill about the whole thing. I was putting it behind me. And all of this changed one night in the blink of an eye when I had to spend the night in jail. So let me tell you this story. It was about 10 o'clock at night, and I was driving uh, Kyle home from a date. He was 15 years old and not yet driving. So he's 30. So if he was about 15 years old, so yeah, that's right, it's about 15 years ago. Not just 10, it was 15 years ago. We were driving up 285, uh, when uh, where I live up through the Turkey Creek Canyon area of 285. And all of a sudden, in my rearview mirrors, I saw red and blue lights flashing. A uh, police officer behind me, I, you know, every time, I haven't been pulled over a whole lot, but every time it has, I see those red and blues, even when it's not about me, I break into a cold sweat. You know, kind of feel that hit me in the pit of my stomach. I wonder what the heck I've done wrong. That night, I I hadn't been speeding, so I wonder what uh, infraction I could have committed. And uh, I was pulled over, and I waited. The officer came up and asked for my ID and insurance. I provided them, and he walked silently back to his car, not saying anything. You know, he was back in his car for quite some time. And as I sat with Kyle and waited, I told him not to be surprised if I had to get out of the car, get out of my truck, and prove my sobriety. You know, I had long since stopped drinking, so I wasn't worried worried about this at all. It wasn't a bother for me, but I had to warn Kyle that I thought this might happen. Sure enough, the officer came forward and asked me to get out of the car. He told me to step around the back and and to put my hands behind my back. I thought to myself, yeah, that's funny. I thought you had to put your hands out f- to your side and stretch them out for the sobriety test, but then in a flash, he took my wrist and a handcuff uh, was placed on them. You know, and I like, I was like shocked. I mean, my mind raced. I, I thought I asked the officer, "What's going on? Is this some kind of joke?" I thought that maybe somebody had put a cop up to do a joke. I mean, you just, I had no idea what was going on. And he said. No, this was no joke at all, and there was a warrant out for my arrest. He read me my Miranda rights, which is bizarre, to uh, to hear those rights be read to you—not something out of a TV, but something now into your face. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, you know, I couldn't believe it—a warrant was out for my arrest. And what the heck had I done? I, you know, I couldn't think of anything. You know, he took me back to his patrol patrol call, car. And he opened the door. He put my hand on his hand on top of my head to keep me from banging my head. And he sat me in the back of the patrol car. You know, I said, "What the hell is going on?" I said, "You know, I thought about Kyle." I said, well, "What was going to happen to Kyle?" I mean, he's a 15-year-old, and young adolescent, sitting up there in the car. In fact, I felt really upset that my kid had to watch me be arrested. I thought that was a major upset. That's something that stayed with me a long time after this whole episode. That. My kid had watched me get arrested, even though I knew that I had no idea what I had done. And the cop said that uh, that there would be another police car that would stay, um, stay there until my wife could be notified and contacted. And either she could come pick him up or they would take him to uh, someplace else, which I can't remember what they said they were going to take him, but not to worry that he was being taken care of. So the officer uh, got in the patrol car and we waited for, the other another patrol car could come and i asked the sheriff i said what had i done wrong i was truly confused and he said so you have no recollection of being in commerce city on the night of september 3rd Um, and i told the officer i barely knew where commerce city is let alone going there he said you don't remember being pulled over for a ticket and did not have proof of insurance Uh, A court date had been set, and I failed to appear, hence the warrant. (laughs) I went, what? Sitting in the back of the patrol car, I thought to myself, the only thing I could think of is these damn people who stole my identity have used my driver's license and committed this stupid crime of not having my insurance. Obviously, they had my driver's license, but they did not have my proof of insurance. And somehow, somehow, my driver's license had been used and somebody had not checked the picture against the person sitting in the car. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. You know, I tried to explain to the whole thing to the sheriff about the theft of my identity, how it raised havoc through my life for the past year, you know, and that everything had gone wrong, that trying to turn it back around it was interesting. You, know, he seemed sympathetic. I said, "I said, look, I'm the pastor of Columbine United Church in Littleton. My whole life revolves around Littleton and this church. No, I'm not connected to Commerce City in any way, shape, or form." He said, "Again, he kind of seemed sympathetic, and he said I would still need to be processed in jail, and the matter taken up in court, and that I could work it out in court." And so, without anymore uh, to be said he we left the other cop car showed up and we left and we started driving to the Jefferson County Jail I mean this is crazy this was a nightmare you know I visit people in jail I don't go to jail I'm a minister I try to stay clear of breaking the law and here I was being transported in handcuffs in the back of a sheriff's car to the Jefferson County Jail now if you've ever been arrested you know how surreal this experience is. You know when you when we pulled up to the to the jail again. Now it's about eleven o'clock at night. Uh, you wait in the car until the officers come and escort you uh, to a room where they take off the handcuffs and they strip search you. Now this was one of the most embarrassing and humiliating things. You got to get buck naked in front of a cop and they strip search you. I kept on thinking. Whatever you're looking for, it's not in there. You know, and, and it's just like, and then uh, I kept on thinking to myself, all this because someone stole my identity. It was the only rational thing that I could think of. You know, I wasn't angry. I uh, know at this time my anxiety is running rampant at this point. You know, I've got this problem with anxiety anyways. And so here I am in jail being strip searched. And it's like I'm panicking almost trying to figure out what the hell is going on. You know, the only thing I could think of is calling my wife and finding a way out of the situation. You know, after being strip searched, I put on the orange prison jumpsuit. Believe me, orange is not my color. <laughs> just, holy cow, orange is not my color. I do not look good in orange. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I was uh, taken, I was put in a holding cell with 15 other men. And we sat and we waited, wondering, and I wondered, I think we all were wondering, what was going to happen next. I think some of them didn't wonder what was going to happen next. I know that they had been in there before, and they knew exactly what was going to happen next. You know, I had no idea. After sitting in there for about a half hour, my name was called. I thought, you know, maybe now I can tell my story and get out of here. Instead, I was taken and fingerprinted. I filled out various sundry forms. And they, I remember they kept on asking me, am I afraid? Are they... Am I afraid of, am I going to take my life tonight? Am I afraid that I'm going to commit suicide? Am I afraid that I'm going to take my life? And they asked me that, I don't know, five times, six times, seven times. You know, maybe they were, maybe, I guess it's because they have tons of experience with this. But they asked me repeatedly if I was going to take my life. I kept on saying, no, I just want to go home. You know, they, uh, after I did all that, they put me back in the cell with these 15 other guys. And the, what struck me um, right away is that I was freezing cold. The air conditioning blasts. And uh, and I was sitting in this flimsy, stupid orange jumpsuit. I had goosebumps and was on the verge of uh, teeth chattering. The other 15 men in the room uh, were feeling much the same way. And we all just sat there cold. I remember pulling my arms inside my sleeves. Trying to build up some type of coal, uh core energy, warmth inside. You know, I guess the only thing I think of is cold men are less apt to fight or cause a problem because it was freezing. So, um, I sat there in the gel in the cell and I tried to be as incons- inconspicuous as I could. Um, I was, you're surrounded by all sorts of male humanity. There was a mix of African-American, a Caucasian, Latino men. We were all ages and sizes. There was one I'll never forget this. There was one very large man with long hair. He was covered in tats. He had bulging biceps. And I knew I wanted to stay as far away from him as I possibly could. And so I sat on the other side of the room and waited for what was next. So we all sat there, freezing cold. Eventually, someone started talking uh, small talk someone started asking each other what they were in for. And uh, I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. You know, As the men went around the room, they started talking about what they were in for. And and it was interesting. One was in for, I'll never forget this drunken disorderly conduct. Another was in a bar fight. Uh, A few of them were in for uh, driving while drunk. Uh, A couple were in for domestic abuse. And then it came my turn, and they looked at me, and I... Asked me what I had done. And I simply said, nothing. I haven't done anything. That sent them all laughing. Uh, sure, they said, you didn't do anything. Right. You know, I come to thinking it was a big guy that I was leery of. Every crazy story I've ever heard about prison and prison fights was racing through my brain. Suddenly, my 165-pound skinny neck and arms... Uh, Seemed pretty puny in this cell with all these other guys. So we sat there. After some silence, one of the guys asked what we did for a living. Now I thought, this was going to be interesting as well. Uh, They went around the room and one by one said different uh, different things. One said, I'm in construction. One was a plumber. One was into roofing. I thought this was interesting. One was an accountant. A couple were unemployed, and the list kind of went on as they went around the room. Then they came to me. I took a breath, and when they asked me what I did for a living, I said, I'll never forget this. I said I was a minister. <laughs> I still think that's funny. I'm a minister. And they uh, all looked at me with blank stares. They didn't know, I had no idea what a minister was, was. So I tried again. I said, I'm a pastor. More blank stares. (laughs) I thought, oh gosh. And so I finally said, I'm a priest. Oh, they got that. (laughs) They they thought I was a priest. And, you know, silence filled the room. Uh, And one of them, it was really funny. So they were silent after I said I was a priest. They got quiet. And then one of them began asking the question, What was the priest doing in prison? When he hadn't done anything wrong. These guys, they all started kind of talking with each other. Why did did God allow a priest to become in prison tonight? He hadn't done anything wrong. And these guys, who hadn't had a theological thought in years, began wondering out loud, how could God let this happen to a priest? You know, they kept on asking me repeatedly, I haven't done anything wrong. Was I lying to them? I kept on trying to, you know, I explained the story of my stolen identity. I told them that truly I had done nothing. This sent them wondering all the more how a priest could uh, have his identity stolen, how he could end up in jail. I told them I wondered the same as well. And we they kind of buzzed. It was like suddenly there was this uh, community that was being formed in this little tiny jail cell. Well, then they got quiet. We all just kind of sat there, and uh, nobody talked, and we just froze. You know, as the night wore on, one by one, the men were taken out and either released on bail or taken up into the main jail cell upstairs where the rest of the jail uh, was. And one by one, they were taken out. And in the middle of the night, I don't know what time it was, 1, 2 a.m., it ended up just being uh, two of us left in the cell, myself and the big biker, tattooed, long-haired, muscled, long-bearded, scary-looking dude, and myself. Um, I'll never forget this. I sat on one side of the room, as far away from him as I could possibly get, and he sat on the other, and his eyes were downcast. He was looking at the floor, and the two of us were quiet and cold. Then suddenly and quietly the man said, Father, I have a confession to make. I suddenly realized uh, I was a priest, and he was going to make a confession. Well, he didn't understand priest. He didn't understand, I mean, he didn't understand being a pastor or a minister, but he sure understood what a priest was, and he was wanting to confess. So I got up and gulped and crossed over the room and sat across from him. I told him my name was uh, Steve, and I'd be more than willing to listen to him. Well, his head hung down, and his hair was streaming down around his big arms, and he was slouched, everything was in his lap, and uh, he started crying. And tears started streaming down his face, and he began pouring out his life. He talked about his childhood, uh, his education or lack of one. He talked about his many jobs as a day worker, marriages that didn't work, It just appeared his life was in shambles. He talked about his prior convictions and other prison times. And then he told me he couldn't do it again. He couldn't serve time again. He said the last time he was in prison, he swore he would kill himself before he would spend another uh, another time in prison. He told me he wanted to confess that he was going to kill himself. And he wondered if he was going to go to hell if he took his life. I sat there, fairly stunned at this huge, hulking man, and how he was so broken. I remember thinking to myself, I said a quick prayer about uh, what to say next. And then gently, and literally as softly as I could, I began talking about the God of love. You know, I, I just had to kind of follow my pastoral instincts. I talked about God's love, and mercy, and forgiveness. I talked about Jesus being the most compassionate person to ever have lived. I talked about hope and new life and the resurrection. I I said God's never going to send anybody to jail if you killed yourself. God's not going to send you to jail. That's one of my kind of my private pet peeves that I have is that people think that if you kill yourself you're going to go to go to hell and so I try to tell them you're not going to go to hell, but I, t- I told them however God does not want you to kill yourself. I said, God does not want you to give up. God wants you to keep on trying again. I told the man he could not give up. God did not want him to kill himself, but to begin again. I told him whatever prison sentence was ahead of him, he would be able to live, survive, and thrive, and he would begin his life again in prison. And when he got out, he could start his life again. It was interesting. it, uh, it created a common bond here between us, two men in prison jumpsuits, in a freezing room, by ourselves, and we started talking. And I don't know how long we talked, um, it could have been for an hour, maybe two, but I told him about my life, I told him about my ministry, I told him about my wife and my kids, and uh, what I thought was important for life, and about purpose for life, and how I felt I had purpose. I kept on coming back and I told him, you know, that he had a purpose for his life that was more than just prison and that he was going to discover his purpose in life. And I told him he could not kill himself. And I made him promise that he wouldn't do so. And uh, through tears, he finally agreed that he wouldn't kill himself. He asked me if I would pray for him. And I told him I would. Um, And I'll never forget Bowing my head, and he bowed his head, and he closed his eyes, and I said a prayer for him. Uh, it was one of the most uh, touching moments in my ministry, as that night with him at that moment saying a prayer. Well, we sat across from each other, quiet, and then he finally looked at me and he said, I'll never forget this. He said, Father, I know why God had you in jail tonight and that was to save my life. Thank you. I just kind of sat there stunned. Father, I know why God had you in jail tonight and that was to save my life. After a few moments, the door opened and the jailer came to take the big man out. As he got up, he looked at me, smiled and said, and I said, remember the promise. He shook his head smiled and walked out. I was left alone in that freezing room, wondering what had just happened. You know, the story of the night ended with uh, Phoebe posting my bell, and I was released. And the weeks that followed was a crazy mess. It took a private detective and an attorney to sort out the whole mess, my identity had been bought and sold so many times it was hard to track down. My driver's license ended up in the hands of a felon, get this, who had been arrested 23 times. 23 times. I thought there was a three strike law, three strikes and you're out. He had been arrested 23 times. You know, when it came to prove to the judge that I truly had my identity stolen, all charges were dropped and my name was cleared. Uh, needless to say, I had to redo all the work of forgiveness all over again. This time, at an even deeper level, I have a lot of a uh, lot of frustration to work through yet again, and uh, that is the nature of forgiveness. That is how forgiveness works. So you have to constantly cycle through it over and over again. But uh, what I couldn't give a, get away from. Was a conversation with the big man and his statement of how God let me be in jail to save his life. You know, in retrospect, I remember thinking, uh, I thought to myself, God works in strange, mysterious ways, but this has to be one of the strangest things I've ever experienced in my life. And I kept on thinking, you know, if the man was right, It took a whole myriad series of events to all fall into place for me to come to this one point, sitting in jail, alone, with this big biker dude at night. You know, the theologian in me wrestles with such notions as predestination, that God has every step of our life uh, preordained, uh, pre-laid out. I think that uh, kind of presents all different kinds of um, problems, but I I had to think, did God somehow set me up to be in this one place with this one man to save his life? If so, then I could backtrack all the way back to the one night when my car was smashed in. Could it be that the thieves meant it for one thing and God meant it for something else? Could it be that God foreknew that months down the line, a big biker dude, his life would hang in the balance. He would need somehow to get someone into prison to save him. You know, the progressive theologian in me wrestles with such a notion, yet I have to admit, I find myself wondering if something else larger than myself is going on. You know, I often talk about making our whole life an offering to God, allowing God to use us in any way possible. If so, could it be that God had the divine hand on my head? You know, sometimes I think about predestination. I think more about providence in life, that God is able to use all of the experience of our lives in a providential way, and that nothing is ever lost with God, that God is able to use all things to bring about God's greater glory, and so that God could use my events to bring me to this point. But yet, I have this nagging sense that could it be somehow that the divine hand was on my head? You know, one time I had a conversation with somebody, and this was after I wrote uh, Sent to Soar, my book Sent to Soar. And that book took me uh, three years to write. And I was having a conversation with somebody about the book, and I told him three years. And I told them that, um, that it wasn't selling, that the only person... Uh, that it was a major flop the book was been a major flop but one time i got a letter from a guy in prison who said that he found the book in the prison library and that the book changed his life and that was the only feedback i've ever gotten about santasor was this one guy in prison the book was in the library and he read it and it saved his life and i thought to myself wow that's profound, that if it took me three years of writing and work and editing and publishing to get this book into this one guy's hands, was it worth it? Would it Was it worth those three years? And maybe was the entire purpose of the book not to be a major publication, whiz, bang, top of the bestseller list, but the whole purpose was for... One guy to get it in a prison locked up somewhere, I had no idea who he was or where he was, but it got into his hands. And if it saved him, I thought to myself, then you know what? Then it was all worth it. Then it was all worth it. And we were talking, I talked with this guy that, about the book, and he said, You know, if you knew that your life three years down the road would be required. To save somebody else's life. Would you do everything you could. To prepare yourself for the one moment. And he said no. That he wouldn't. uh, That he wouldn't spend his life that way. And I I said you know what. That's where we're different. If I knew there was somebody out there in my future. That needed to be saved. Then I would do everything possible. To get myself ready to pay any cost. To prepare to save this life. And I think well. Maybe God takes me at my word. You know, there's uh, so much about how God works that I find a, minis- a mystery. We can do all the theology in the world pontificating about how God works, when in the end, I think we're all just called to humbly bow and dedicate ourselves to God and God's kingdom. You know, now all these years later, I think back about my identity stolen, all the legal mayhem, the financial crisis, the angst and the anger, and the need to forgive. And the lessons I've learned from that event, in my life has lasted for years. I constantly think about the need to forgive. Forgiveness is not something that is natural for any of us. I know it's not natural for me. I think the only reason why I um, I forgive is because of the teachings of Jesus. And and but that event, when I had my identity stolen, taught me about forgiveness, and it faint it it f- shaped me. It formed me. Um. The event shaped my ways of thinking. Now, sitting here all these years later, when things seem to be going haywire in my life, I think about the man in prison. I think about that cold night, and I wonder just what God might be up to and how God is going to be using me next. Like I think about this uh, broken wrist that I've got right now. You know, it seems simple, it seems silly, it seems small a broken wrist. A broken wrist, a shattered cheekbone, uh, surgery, uh, pins and plates, really no big deal. A bazillion people have gone through the same type of surgery. But yet, I know in some way, shape, or form that somehow God is going to use this down the road. In fact, I was reading in, I think it was the book of Romans, maybe it was 1 Corinthians, but it's something from Paul, where Paul said that when we go through tough times, that we must endure because God is going to be with us in our tough times. And then when we are going through our tough times, God is going to bring somebody else who's going through their tough times, and we're going to come alongside them to be with them just as God is with us. And so I thought to myself when I was, I knew I was kind of getting ready for this podcast, and I thought about the night in jail, and I thought, well, okay, I was going through this tough time, with having my identity stolen, and I had to realize that God was with me, that God was calling me to forgive, and I had to think, okay, then maybe, just maybe, God was going to bring about somebody else's going through a tough time, and I was to come along beside them to be with them. And so if that's the case, then maybe this crazy accident that happened, which I don't think God said, Steve, you're going to crash and fall from a hay bale and break your wrist and crash your face up. I don't think he God set that up. I think it was an accident that happened. But I think that God is able to use that. And God will use that in such a way that it will further God's will in the world to bring about the kingdom of God. And what I have to do is I have to be willing to allow God to work with me in such a way. And the... And then that's my lesson to you is that I think the same way happens to you. I mean, I want you to think about the crazy things that have happened to you in your life. What are all the tragic, bad things that have happened to your life? What are even the good things that have happened to your life? And how has God used those events that come along beside you, not only for your benefit, but for the benefit of other people? How have your events shaped and formed you that have lasted in your life for years and years? Like for me, over 15 years now. My Kyle is 30. This was 15. So over 15 years later, this still echoes in my life. What are those life events that still echo for you in the middle of your life? That's how God works. And then you look at what what's going on with your life right now. What are the tragedies right now in the middle of your life? You know, you might not have a broken wrist, but you might be looking at financial ruin because of the COVID crisis. You might be going through a depression or a despair. You might have a, a loved one that's sick, or you might have, you're facing some kind of cancer, something. Something's going on in your life. Well, I want you to believe, because I, I just know this in my bones to be true, that God will use that event. ...to further God's kingdom and the work in the world. But you have to be ready and willing to be God's instrument. You have to be willing, ready, and willing to be God's instrument. Because there's going to be somebody down the road. There's going to be somebody down the road who's going to need you... ...in some way, shape, or form. And they might just come blasting into your life when you least expect it... uh, ...like red and blue lights in your rearview mirror... Like ending up in a night in jail and maybe not near as crazy as that. Just somebody who comes into your life that needs help. And God's going to have the divine hand on your head. And you have to decide how you're going to respond. And I would encourage you to respond as God's instrument. Taking a gulp, saying a prayer, and believing that God can indeed use you. All right, that's my story of my night in jail. You know, thanks for listening to the Steve Poos Benson podcast. I hope the story has somehow touched and inspired your life. You know, I'm so honored that you have given us this time together. Um, As always, I wanted to connect. You can read my blog, Cowboy Jesus. You can watch my videos, uh, the Wednesday shout-out, as well as the um, Centosaur videos. You can... uh, I talk about Cowboy Jesus, oh, Instagram and Twitter. I try to be involved in as many different platforms as I can because I like connecting with people in so many different ways. Uh, I want you to like my page um, on Facebook, Dr. Steve Poos Benson. Go visit my website, www.stevepoosbenson, So let's stay connected. And let me send you out with a blessing. May the God of grace and glory. Fill you with peace and hope. Amen. Take care. Thanks for listening.